Welcome to My on Mondays, an explorative approach to the possessive my through narratives, art, and sound. Each Monday brings a new creation and unique perspective. My on Mondays is brought to you by Ming Studios, a contemporary art space and international artist residency program dedicated to the exhibition, experience, and exploration of arts and culture. Along with exhibiting artists from around the world, Ming also serves the community by hosting innovative programs including performances, workshops, screenings, readings, artist talks, and other cultural activities. For more information or if you'd like to participate in Maya on Mondays, you can visit our website at mingstudios.org. Thanks so much for tuning in for our 12th episode of My on Mondays. Today's featured guest, C.L. Young, is a writer with a background in philosophy and contemporary dance. Her poems can be found in Lana Turner, Poetry Northwest, The Volta, and elsewhere, and essays are at Entropy and the Schofield. She holds an MFA in poetry from Colorado State University and lives in Boise, Idaho. For the past decade, she's focused much of her work and attention on grief and the processes of death and dying. Her piece today is titled My 2011. The following essay is called 2011. It feels appropriate, though, that the naming of this series would have it be My 2011. Whenever someone recounts to me a particularly difficult period of their life, one filled with multiple losses or repeated trauma such that it has marked a decisive change in them, that is how I've cataloged it in my mind, as that person's 2011. A time or event so momentous that afterward life splays out on either side of it, inextricable from that center place. For me, 2011 has rippled outward in both directions so dramatically that I cannot understand or imagine myself without it. This has to do with what came after, how that year lodged itself in my heart and the hearts of my friends, causing change and turmoil, upheaval. There has been relocation and substance use, marriage and isolation, and other deaths that came later, their invisible tethers stretching back to that year. 2011 also provided information about the past. When someone dies, particularly someone young, while you are also young, it contextualizes that person, that relationship, in a way that can't happen if they remain living. They become mythic, their appearance in your life suddenly finite, relegated to what memories you can hold on to, to what meaning you can make of their life and their role in yours. There will be no reunion, no opportunity for thanks or repair, for mutual reflection or sense-making. This essay was written in the fall of 2015. Its contents represent one moment in time, four years after the events it describes, in which the grief of them was, for me, still searing just below the surface. Though much has changed since I wrote it, the world, the brokenness of my heart, my perspective around problematic relationship dynamics, the acceptance of my own experience of bipolar disorder, and the death of another best friend, to name a few. It feels important to me to preserve its clarity, 
to allow that moment's understanding of what happened to be cast in amber. Someone once suggested that I revise 2011 to reflect what grief has taught me. I resisted this advice at the time, not quite understanding why. Certain things must be written simply so that their events can be witnessed. This essay is not about anything else because when it was written, there was nothing else. I can't recast it in healing or wholeness because I don't understand grief as a condition to be assuaged. I understand it as something that simply exists, that cannot be made otherwise. If I have learned anything from grief, it is the importance of making space for it, of resisting my culture's fearful and clinical treatment of death and dying, of its understanding of grief as something to be ignored and gotten over, and instead to imagine one that allows mortality and loss to act as grounding forces, as a confirmation of humanity. Writing about grief has given me this space, as has talking with others about their experiences of loss. Through recording and collecting conversations for SEMA, my understanding of grief in its infinite forms has deepened and expanded to an extent I did not think possible, cementing my certainty of the necessity of such exchanges. I don't believe it's possible to understand or communicate the colossal loss that has occurred over the past year and a half that continues to occur, the unevenness of its distribution, how it compounds when combined with all that was already present. If I can hope anything, it is for a further opening to and deepening of these conversations. All of 21, I've been thinking about what 10 years means, what is supposed to have happened by now who I am supposed to be. But the time I know doesn't work like that. Years don't lessen in significance or reality just because they get farther away. To me, moving through each day feels like standing on a stack of calendars, each year one layer of an infinite cake, every moment of my life ever occurring somewhere in my body. Grief doesn't end. And yet, this sense of repetition, of rhyme and of echo, is the same one that makes love possible, and reverence, and growth, and resilience, and it is what keeps me alive. Two thousand eleven. Everything that ever happened to me is just hanging, crushed and sparkling in the air, waiting to happen to you. Everything that ever happened to me happened to somebody else first. Mary Rufel, Saga. A lot of bad things happened in 2011. Things come on and then more of them. He dies and he dies and then she is killed to eclipse them both. In the six months from March to August, I was 22, then I was 23. There were illnesses of the mind and body, attempted deaths, one, actual deaths, three, young people, mostly under 30. As Seattle tried for spring and everything else started to cave in, an unspoken communication system was created amongst the living. A missed call with no message means everything is fine. Call back when you can. One missed call with a message means something has changed or everything is fine for now. Listen immediately. 
Two missed calls in a row without a message means call back now. Three or more missed calls in a row with no message or multiple calls from multiple people means someone is dead. Years later, I continue my devotion to this system. Sometimes it is still accurate. I moved to Seattle because that was what I thought people from Boise who want to become something were supposed to do. Go somewhere more urban, smarter, shed the inferiority complex of being from Idaho by learning how to pretend you're not from Idaho. S moved to Seattle to be near boats. He wanted to be able to wake up every day and see water, to feel cool mist on his face, to be cradled in the forgiving arms of the monocloud. He wanted to eat good food and read about Arctic explorers, and for a while he did. We'd met in Boise a couple of years before both ending up in the upper left edge of the country. He was an MFA student and the instructor of a poetry class I took for a semester in college, during which we had a brief romantic relationship. The surface details of this make it seem as lecherous as any other archetypal teacher-student transgression. He was 10 years my senior in a position of authority grading my work, but I never saw it that way. At the point in my life when I met him, my brain and heart were miles beyond those of my male peers. For most of my 20s, I was not interested in any of them and could consistently be found dating someone 10-plus years older than me. I told myself I knew what I was doing. Mostly, he made me soup and we drank coffee and read poems in bed. We made each other laugh. S could get excited about anything. His energy was endless and infectious. He was also a good teacher and one I needed at the time. When we met, I felt deflated. I'd left school in Eugene because years of disordered eating had finally taken a toll on my body. I was exhausted, anemic, depressed. Returning to my hometown university made me feel ashamed and I could not imagine learning anything there. At just the right moment, S recognized I was smart. He made me love poetry, something that's difficult to convince people to love, and it became the thing around which my life now orbits. It was a miracle to me at the time, one that has only grown in the years since. The truth is, I had more control over our relationship than he did. I had agency when it began and agency to end it. After a few nights of him showing up incoherently drunk at my house when I myself was still not old enough to go to a bar, I learned that age means very little about maturity and responsibility, and our relationship shifted swiftly to friendship. People try to tell you that living in the Pacific Northwest is difficult. For those who are from the region, the endless days of gray and wet are a kind of comfort. They encourage time spent inside, often leading to reflection and creativity. The shared adversity of over a hundred days in a row without sun gives people something to talk about and an excuse to be silent. It gives whole cities a reason to skip out on work when the clouds finally burn off. The sun comes back, people look up, people smile and laugh in public for the first time since October. These moments of shared joy become addicting because they are the reward for months and months of endurance, only so bright because of a persistent sense of lack. The acute awareness of dark and light in these communities makes life feel dynamic and significant without requiring any action beyond simply being. Everyone has a vast emotional range through no doing of their own. 
For those who are accustomed to regions that experience primarily clear days, however, the aliveness that's possible in Seattle and its neighboring cities also presents a quiet, gradual onset risk. But I like the rain, you reply. You like the rain until months have passed in darkness with no sign that the clouds will thin. Any difficulty, any illness, any conflict brewing under the surface during the winter months reaches its boiling point around March, maybe April or May, depending on the year. And even if unrest was absent in October, by the time spring should be happening and it isn't, then summer should be happening and it still isn't, turmoil still manages to materialize. I have lived in this region four separate times. Each time, I've tried harder to be thoughtful about my approach, to adapt myself more effectively to the situation. I use the UV light that is supposed to keep me happy. I go for runs in the rain instead of sitting on the couch. I limit my drinking. I sleep enough, but not too much. I eat well. I try to appreciate the beauty and green the climate makes possible even in winter. Still, I cannot seem to stay. I moved to Seattle from Boise in July of 2010, a couple months after I finished college. S moved there from Missoula in November of 2010, a year and some change after finishing grad school in Boise. At the time, both of us had lived the vast majority of our lives in 300-plus days of sun per year, with the exception of my disastrous two years of college in Eugene. I thought I knew what I was in for, that I'd do it better this time. I moved in with my middle older sister, my happy light in tow. S brought rain shoes and studied nautical maps. The decline was slow at first. Though S did not come to Seattle to be near me, I was one of his few and closest friends there. I knew that he struggled with bipolar disorder and with alcohol before he came to Seattle because these had been part of the downfall of our romantic involvement. I knew he'd been to the hospital before, twice. I was not unfamiliar with how depression and mania operate. Though I had not yet experienced these myself, I grew up with a therapist mother and was living with my clinical psychologist sister. My father has been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. He's been to the hospital before, too, twice. Most of the men on either side of my family have died earlier than they could have, often as a result of various mental illnesses. Most of the women have lived with theirs. The months leading up to March were filled with wonderful adventures, trips to the map section of the Seattle Public Library, walks along the water, drinks at maritime dive bars in Fremont and Ballard, and elaborate meals prepared for me in S's tiny studio apartment in the trees at the top of Queen Anne. I watched in fascination how excited he got about deboning a fish, about identifying different types of sailboats. I felt my energy and awakeness increase with his own. We skipped through the streets and stared at the details of different trees. We made up games to play while we waited for the bus. Those months were also filled with 3 a.m. phone calls, text messages so jumbled and cryptic I could barely read them, and slurred voicemails punctuated by full minutes of silence. Nighttime and booze turned his exhilaration into helplessness and desperate sadness. I could not hear through the weeping. He didn't want to live anymore. He tried cutting himself, thought of jumping off bridges. The worst were the late calls without messages or no answer when I called back in the morning. 
I waited for his landlord to contact me to come deal with his body. When missed calls from unknown Seattle numbers showed up on my phone, I was sure he was dead. Sometimes that was what I wanted. I was 22. I had not yet learned how to protect myself from other people. I hadn't learned that I don't have to, cannot be the sole resource for someone in crisis. Instead, I poured into him and let him pour into me until I was exhausted and out of my body. I tried several times to set boundaries. We'd go a week without talking and everything would get better, then days later another slurred and sobbing message. Add to all of this the winter in Seattle. The wet, dark, cold-to-the-bone winter in Seattle. The months from November to February that leave hardly anyone completely intact. March came and I was tired. I expected spring. On a Friday, after a week of not talking to each other, S. called to tell me he tried to kill himself and asked if I could bring a gallon of Clorox bleach to his apartment. He also asked if I could take him to the hospital. He wasn't dying. He'd made sure of that the night before by drinking hand soap to throw up the pills he'd taken. At the time he called me, he was with his landlord, cleaning up a malfunction of the septic system. He said he needed bleach to get the smell out of the apartment. I thought he wanted to drink it. I called my sister and asked what I should do. She gave me a list of things to say and the right hospital to go to. She said, try to convince them he can't be with himself. He cleaned the apartment before we got in the car. On the drive from Queen Anne to First Hill, he seemed relieved, almost happy. I saw him smile out the window at the view of the city. Years later, in letters and conversations, he would cite this car ride as one of the greatest moments of gratitude in his life. To me, it didn't feel real. In the emergency room, I used the language my sister had given me. Not safe, doesn't feel he can make it through the weekend. They pulled a warm blanket out of the weird hospital blanket oven for me to wrap around myself. Its fabric caught on the dry skin of my hands. I wondered if this was what it had been like for my mother when she took my father to the hospital. While they admitted him, I watched myself waiting like I was watching a movie, imagined my mother's movie in split screen next to mine. When they took me back to say goodbye to S, everything around him was the same white of my blanket and cold hands. He was wearing a gown and holding a styrofoam box of pasta. The pasta had nothing on it, and he poked at it with a plastic fork. He looked pleased and comfortable, finally taken care of, and I felt myself slip into a sensation I didn't expect. I was jealous of him of his running toward an edge and careening off of it, of his letting himself be that alive. S and I had talked about what was happening to him as it happened. He wrote about it beautifully that winter and posted the writing regularly on a WordPress blog. It was not about losing control, but about feeling so close to the center of existence it could almost be touched. He wrote about Nijinsky and Amundsen, about flowers and green and exploration at the ends of the earth. Part of the reason we were able to speak about it was a sense of understanding. I wanted to listen because I knew what he was describing was a possibility for me, something I'd felt glimmers of throughout my life. 
I'd felt edges in myself, and I'd had my own difficulties, but in these difficulties, I'd managed to stay just close enough to safety, just put together enough that no one noticed. And because no one noticed, I could pretend nothing was happening. In that moment, as I watched him ease into care, I felt a desire to let myself unravel in the same breath that I felt angry at him for doing so. I'd seen how beautiful it was, and I'd felt in my own body how destructive it had been. I was both victim of and accomplice to his clarity, observing and nurturing it like a glittering specimen, then casting it away when it became too much for me to hold. In the hospital bed, he looked like a little boy who'd gotten away with something. Still, I thought, this is the bravest person I know. For a week after that, he stayed in the wing where they don't allow belts or pens or real coffee, where at night you can hear sounds people aren't supposed to make in front of other people. I visited a couple of times, but now that he was surrounded by nurses and doctors, my role in the story had expired. When I went to his apartment to get clean socks for him, I washed my hands with what was left of the soap he drank. I met L because he was a regular at the coffee shop where I worked for the year I lived in Boise during college, the same year I met S. We had a lot of regulars. It was the kind of shop that sat in an area of downtown with high foot traffic, established in the 90s, bad art rotating on and off the walls, bad furniture that made it feel comfortable. It was before sleek shops with slow coffee and angular chairs, before unfriendly baristas and intimidating layouts. It was the kind of place where different types of people become family, where I could walk in right now, years after my last shift, and tell you the names of the people sitting at the corner table. Elle was my favorite regular. We kept a little brown cup underneath the register only for him. When it broke one night, I took it home and brought it back in the morning, super glued together. Later, when he was sick, I found a cup just like it at a thrift store and mailed it to him with a pile of sad poems I hope he never read. He was my favorite because he was funny in a way that was a little mean but never malicious. His voice traveled across any room he occupied, and every once in a while his sparkly eyes would grab hold of mine and all I could do was laugh. The first time I saw L play music, something changed about my understanding of him. I realized that his humor sprung from a place of sadness, of feeling strange in the world. There is no way to effectively describe what he sounded like when he sang or how exactly it seemed to come from deep in the center of his body. It felt like he was pulling something out of himself and placing it in my hands. Only when I read poems to a room full of people can I begin to imagine what he might have felt as he played. An opening forms in my diaphragm. A substance without mass travels up my center into my throat and out of my mouth. Afterward, fatigue in my abdomen and chest as though they have just made their own storm. Perhaps it is a little like giving birth, but in the opposite direction. I can only do it so often. Over the year that I worked at the coffee shop, I fell into a very best friendship with one of the other baristas, B, and we became friends with some of the other regulars, too. L and C and J were a few years ahead of us in their 20s. H and her husband were in their 30s and lived with their son in the apartment building across the street. 
All of them were artists in one way or another and had met while working in a different coffee shop a decade or so before we came along. The six of them and rotating others had formed their own sort of family, and gradually, B and I found our way into it, too. When I left Boise to spend my last year of college abroad, B regularly Skyped me into shifts at the coffee shop and Saturday mornings at the bagel place with L and H and her husband and C. After France, I came back for one last young, perfect, alcohol-soaked summer with all of them before moving to Seattle. A few days after I picked up S from the hospital, C called from Boise to tell me they had taken L to the emergency room. For the past few months, he had been keeping to himself, spending most of his time in, a, in his apartment, and now he was sick. He'd had a health condition since childhood that required him to take expensive medication constantly, and months before, he'd stopped taking it. I'm still not sure why. Maybe because he couldn't afford it anymore. Maybe because his parents had been out of the country on a mission for the Mormon church for several months and he finally felt alone. Maybe he had a desire to see what his body would do on its own. I don't know. But by the time they finally got him to the hospital, he had cancer, and it was bad. Liver, lymph nodes, kidneys. They gave him eight months to live. When I got off the phone with C, I bought a plane ticket to Boise and flew back the next weekend. I did it to see L, but mostly I did it for the rest of them. I could feel myself moving into the space I'd occupied for S and for others before him, again becoming amateur therapist, primary support system. I minimized my relationship with L. I told my sadness it couldn't exist and tried instead to absorb everyone else's, because theirs was real and I could help them hold it. How could I possibly be close enough with him to be allowed to feel anything? What does it mean to be close with someone? I walked with C down the long hall of the hospital wing that is always quiet. L's skin was gray against the two white hospital sheets. He made jokes. He didn't have a shirt on. The ridges of his sternum were just like a washboard. There is a painting by Diego Velasquez that hangs in the Prado in Madrid called Christ Crucified. It is the only painting of the crucifixion I have seen where Jesus looks dead enough, the blood gone from his face and hands, skin like paper. That was how L looked. I kissed his cold forehead and we left. Eight months seemed very generous. The morning after we visited the hospital, C and I sat outside my parents' house and I tried to explain how draining the past three months in Seattle had been. I tried to tell him what the missed calls and cryptic voicemails had done to my body, what it feels like to wait every day, to hear from someone else's landlord, to wake up mapping a plan for retrieving a corpse. We don't think about our limits, I said. We don't drive to work or do our laundry, wondering about the extent of our resilience to trauma. Then something happens. Then another thing. And another. I can't take another thing right now, I told him. Even as this was true, I also felt something else. Everything that matters had come into focus, and it felt like we were all really talking to each other for the first time. We were moving through the world as though it were finally as bright and real as it is in the movies, with us at its center, all beauty and ugliness ours, weather patterns and landscapes, the way we fed ourselves or didn't, while everything inconsequential receded into the background. 
I didn't want L to die, and I didn't want us to stop being this way. I flew back to Seattle, six days later, to finish the march that had started with a gallon of Clorox in the emergency room at Swedish Hospital. M died falling from a train. M was another regular, but I'd known him since I was 15, and he was the most alive person I'd ever met. I remember having coffee together one cool fall morning when I was a junior in high school. I'd watched him refuse cream, then add drops of cold water into the cup so that he could drink it faster. And that was how he was. He wanted everything all at once, as immediate and undiluted as possible. M was the first friend I ever had who was living in a way outside the way I'd been taught to live. He was astonishingly intelligent. He'd been a competitive debater in high school and could talk that fast and accurately about almost anything. But he also had tattoos and friends who looked like artists. He wasn't afraid to talk about the world in a way that asked it questions, and he wasn't afraid to feel. He made cigarettes look cool and read big books, but he didn't care about academia or achievement. I kissed him once. It tasted like coffee and Nag Champa. Knowing M blew open my understanding of what my life could look like. He was also the first person I ever met who wrote poems and was proud of it. As he wore his way through his 20s, M progressed from a somewhat reasonable shade of bohemian intellectual to what felt like an extreme reenactment of a Kerouac novel. He became more nomadic. I saw him less and less often, and when I did, it was wandering downtown with half a shirt on. Still beautiful, still palpably alive, but also tired and with eyes that felt increasingly hollow. Drugs, trains hopped, wonder rotting to disillusion. A couple of months before we heard about L, M wrote on my Facebook wall, Call me, please. I need some new light. At that point, everything with S was in full technicolor and I didn't have light left for anything else. I remember sitting outside in the rain, listening to M on the phone. All I could think about was how tired I was. After a few minutes, I made an excuse and hung up. It was the last time I heard his voice. Someone told me that M hopped this particular train because he'd heard about L and was trying to make his way back to Boise. This is true or not. Either way, he was moving in the wrong direction through Oregon with a blood alcohol level high enough to kill most people. I heard he fell or was pulled by force between two train cars found later on the ground next to the tracks. The news said he didn't die right away, or he was alive enough to be taken to the hospital. It didn't occur to me until years later that he might have jumped. I don't think C wanted to tell me about M, and when he did, I spent most of the day locked in a bathroom in a house that wasn't mine, lying in an empty bathtub with my clothes on. Years later, I would write, I guess I never thought of M as having had a problem in so much as I thought he was in love with feeling and not feeling in equal measure. And that was true, and he died of it. There is a vial of perfume I bought around the time I first went back to visit Elle in the hospital. It's a different scent from the one I normally wore, but it was the one smell I liked in a container small enough to pack in my carry-on. I used it only in 2011 and only when I traveled. I call it my funeral perfume. 
I don't have the vial anymore, but the scent is still popular enough that I sometimes encounter it on other people. In these instances, it is not so much a reminder of the dead, but the sensation that I am walking past a ghost of myself. I didn't go home for M's memorial. A few weeks after he died, I had to fly to D.C. to help run a meeting for work. It was the only normal traveling I did with the perfume that year. The night before the meeting, my boss asked me to come to his hotel room to finish our presentation for the next day. When I walked in and moved toward the chair in the corner, he gestured to the bed. Sit there, he said. Then he moved next to me. You smell good, he said. After a few minutes, a knock at the door. I got up to open it and let my other boss in, sat down in the corner. On the flight back to Seattle, I felt like I was coming out of my skin. I called my mom. I asked what exactly had happened to my father the times he'd gone to the hospital. She suggested I go see a particular therapist the next time I was in Boise. I had no trips planned, but she must have known it would be soon. She's too much of a worrying person not to have known. That was the end of April. S. left Seattle to go back to Montana. I moved into his studio in the trees on the hill on May 1st, and my sister's fiancé moved into our house. This seemed like the natural action at the time. S's lease was cheap and month to month. I liked his landlord, and I'd always wanted to live alone. My sister had met her future husband not long after I'd come to Seattle, and things were moving quickly. She was 35 and wanted kids. So did he. Despite my recent queries to my mother, I did not consider at the time how fucked up I was. Fucked up people don't tend to weigh how fucked up they are when making decisions. It took me a long time to understand that moving into an isolated basement apartment was not a reasonable action, but an action made by a person unraveled. Days after I moved, L died. Two months, not eight. The perfume and I flew back to Boise for the funeral. C was a pallbearer and had to be there early. We drove across town together in his old orange truck, then shared a cigarette while we paced the blocks of the neighborhood, almost certain and maybe hoping we'd turn to ash the moment we opened the doors of the LDS church. Instead, when we walked in, we were still alive and everything around us was beige. We passed through the room with the flayed open casket, L's face was still gray, but now he was wearing a suit deflated by his emaciated body. In his dead hands was a construction paper card his niece had made for him. We shook his parents' hands. We said, I'm sorry. During the service, we watched them smile out from the podium at all of L's friends as they told us about God's plan and just how part of God's plan this all was. Over and over again, I brought my wrist to my nose and smelled the perfume, made sure I was still there. While I was in Boise, my mom insisted that my dad tell me everything about what had happened to him so that I could know whether or not it was happening to me. He talked about the first time in his late 20s when they strapped him to the hospital bed while he was visiting his girlfriend in California before he and my mother were together. He told me about poorly prescribed medication, moving back in with his parents, weeks spent half sleeping on the couch. Then he talked about the time when I was three, when he'd made a mistake at work, then stayed awake for days trying to understand the error, trying to undo it with the sheer force of his mind. How he'd talked and talked to my mother. 
so much that one day she opened a can of Campbell's chicken noodle soup to make me lunch, then left it on the counter because he needed to tell her something. I waited and waited, and when she did not come back, I took the can into the living room where they sat and turned it upside down, noodles all over the carpet. How he handed her the key to the safe where he kept his shotguns. That was the time I decided to live, he said. At the therapist's office, I asked if it was happening to me. No, he said. Everything that has happened to you in the past few months is happening to you. You are not happening to you. That was May. Between June and August, I started to feel better. The sun came out and Seattle did its rapid transformation from Gotham to Mayberry. I asked for more money at work and there were no business trips. I started seeing a therapist regularly. On August 16th, I woke up feeling awful again. It was Tuesday, M's birthday. I waited all day with my phone on my desk, expecting it to buzz with some new horror. Instead, it came a week later. I have always wanted a twin. I am a Gemini with two Gemini parents, both of whom grew up with siblings who were their complements. I am my dad's only child, and I was their last try. A geriatric pregnancy, multiple late-term miscarriages before me. For a time, I even had a twin. Parts of my other half were in my mother when they cut her open to pull me out of her and into the world. I have wanted someone to share my life with, someone to bear continuous witness to my family, to the everyday, to my victories and transgressions. I have wanted to not to have to tell the story, but to have it be always already known, down to its finest detail and most inner secret. I maintain that my lack of a twin is one of the primary things that has made me a writer, that if I can get all of my life down in 12-point font, print it out, and hand it to a reader, they might act as a double for the person whose body never formed all the way. We met on Halloween in elementary school, and we had the same name, Catherine, Catherine, Katie, Katie. We called each other Kate, Kate. She was a year younger than me and tough, the little sister of a not much older brother. I was the half-sister of sisters over a decade older, both long gone from the house, quiet, and accustomed to being around adults. Because of my perceived maturity and the 10 months of age I had on her, I thought of myself as Katie's teacher and role model, her elder. Really, she was as close as I'd gotten to having a twin. Ours was a private friendship, a shared world with just the two of us inside it. We ambled around on all fours eating dog food. We acted out the little mermaid at the community pool. I was Ariel, she was everyone else. We tried on training bras. We tried French kissing, our hands, each other. I showed her how to apply creamy blue eyeshadow and how to make herself throw up when she thought she'd had too much to eat. She helped me get better at playing the violin and kicking a soccer ball. I cut her hair. We choreographed ballets in my parents' living room. Her brother bullied us and we protected each other. She talked to me while I sewed ribbons on my point shoes. I watched her show horses and taught her how to use a tampon. I met my first love in her basement. When she had sex without a condom, I drove her to Planned Parenthood. 
We laughed hard at the questions on the forms. I have never heard another laugh like hers. She spent more time with my family than any friend I've ever had. There was a period when she ate dinner at our house more often than her own. This also meant she saw my family in a way that was rare, sitting at the kitchen counter, TV on, witness to all the peculiarities and intimacies and shame that rarely left the house. As we worked our way through junior high and high school, we spent less time together. Then I went away to college. After that, we'd see each other in passing during school breaks, driving or walking the hill to and from our parents' houses. We sent occasional emails, heard about each other through our mothers. I have never been able to understand how people come in and out of each other's lives with such ease and frequency. When friends become distant or loves end, when we evolve away from each other or break each other's hearts, the parts of people that have become me ache for their counterparts. I fight to continue what I have of them, let them maintain residence in my mind and elsewhere in my body. With certain people, though, regardless of the last time or depth of contact, the feeling of distance never comes. There is a connection, a closeness that transcends the physical world and remains intact. I think it must be what some people call unconditional love. For me, nearly all the people that fall into this category are family. The others who've joined it are few and far between, and Katie was one of them. When we stopped seeing each other regularly, there was no guilt or shame or friction. I didn't see her, but she was still there. For me, Katie died 14 hours after she actually did. It was August 23, 2011, around 10.30 a.m., I was sitting at my desk at the multi-billion dollar architecture corporation in downtown Seattle where I worked as an assistant to the two executives from the hotel room, busy preparing for a meeting that would happen that day. Several other executives from different offices around the country were on their way into town on flights I had booked, ready to stay in hotels I'd arranged for them, eat meals at restaurants I had chosen. I still had caterers to confirm and multiple presentations to finalize before the end of the day. I was scrambling. My mom tried my cell phone first, then she called my work phone. I saw her number on the screen and thought about not picking up. I answered without saying hello. I'm going to have to work while I talk to you because that meeting's tomorrow and I have to go get this presentation done by two. She asked if I was sitting down. I said, of course I'm sitting down. I just told you I'm sitting down. She said, maybe you want to go somewhere quiet and call me back on your cell phone. I started listening then. I stood up. I called her back or I transferred the call to an empty office. I think she paused for a second before she started talking. Maybe she took a deep breath, knowing these were the last moments we had before the world tore in half. What happens next happened to me more fully than anything has ever happened, changing everything that came before it. I imagine my mother's elbows on the kitchen counter in the house where I grew up. I imagine her right hand tight around the chunky black rectangular house phone, her left hand cradling her forehead. Katie B., she said. Katie was shot. Is she okay, I said. She died, my mother said. I got off the phone and went back to my desk, typed her name into the search bar. The resulting information is bare as I can give it. 
She was a student in one of his psychology classes at the University of Idaho in the fall of 2010. They were involved romantically, and then they were not. He threatened her several times. He put a gun in her mouth. She told the university. The university investigated, and he resigned. He said he was leaving to start a job somewhere else. He came to her house in the evening on her first day of graduate school and shot her 11 times. He went to a hotel nearby and shot himself. She was 22. There is, of course, other information I could provide. A list of the guns they found in his hotel room, a list of the medications, a list of his diagnoses, what the university could have done to protect her, what she could have done to protect herself, all the things the federal government could have done to keep him from being allowed to own a gun. I have written these down before, but nothing good comes of them. I cannot approach him with any humility or understanding. I cannot think clearly. All I can see is her body full of holes, her blood seeping into the grass. I stood up. I walked to the elevator. I took the elevator to the ground. I went outside. The sun was bright. I went back upstairs. I didn't speak. On my lunch break, I went for a run on the waterfront. Near the old Seattle PI building, I stopped being able to breathe. I crumpled into a fetal position. Mount Rainier was there. I stood up. I ran back to work. I took a shower. I walked into my boss's office and told him I think I need to go, but I'll be here tomorrow for the meeting. I'll be here tomorrow. I walked out of the office and into the street. I walked up the hill. I walked into a bar and there were drinks there and I drank them. There were cigarettes and I smoked them. People called me and I answered. People called me and I didn't answer. My sister picked me up from the bar. We drove to another part of town. She left me at a different bar while she got her hair cut. There was a drink there and I drank it. We went to her friend's house. They gave me strawberries and I ate them. The first love I met in Katie's basement drove to Seattle from Tacoma and picked me up. We went to Queen Anne and looked out over the Ballard locks, shared the tiny bottle of whiskey I'd been carrying around in my purse for a few months just in case. We slept in my bed with our clothes on. He left early. The morning was bright. I emailed work and told them someone else needs to do the meeting. I got up. I got dressed. I got in the car. I got my car washed for the first time since moving to Seattle. The Ballard Bridge was up. I waited. I had coffee. My friend told me about the time her dad died when she'd lost all her eyelashes because she couldn't cry. My parents called. My father said he was sorry. He told me about his friend from junior high who died by suicide, about eating dinner with his parents after it happened. He said everyone ate and talked like normal, so he started to scream. I got in the car and drove to Bellingham to visit a boy I knew in high school. I thought it would make me feel better. I watched him eat a sandwich while he talked about old-growth forests. I didn't feel better. I drove back to Seattle. I went to sleep. I went to work. I went to a bar, and there were drinks, and I drank them. There were cigarettes, and I smoked them. My friend took me home in her car. I had no keys, and my door was locked. I slept in her apartment and wore her clothes to work. I spilled coffee on her sweater. I slept on a couch in a dark office. I took the light rail to the airport. I flew to Portland. My friend drove me to her apartment. I slept there. I went back to the airport. I flew to Boise. I had sex with someone. I had sex with someone else. After that, the news became a too-close movie. 
Sitting at the kitchen counter where I'd watched her eat dinner hundreds of times, I listened to her name come out of the television while the entire United States saw the dimple on her left cheek. I wanted a chance to stand in front of her. I wanted to tell her not to be so stupid, to protect herself, and that it wasn't her fault. I wanted to be her sister. I went to two funerals in a day. At hers, people kept saying, Katie's tragedy, Katie's tragedy. No one said his name, no one told the story, no one said murder. It felt as though she had brought about her own death, as though the fatal flaw she was given at birth was that her heart would be vulnerable to love, her body to the result of a firearm. I wanted him to come back to life so that I could kill him again. I tried to remember her laugh. My middle sister got married two weeks after the funeral. During the ceremony, I stood between her and the friend who had given me strawberries. Later, I gave a toast. I wanted to say something not just for them, but for myself, a sound that could leave my body and not come back. I wanted catharsis. I could not write anything, read someone else's words instead. I went back to Seattle. I went to work. I quit my job. People drove me around. People watched me eat dinner. There were drinks, and I drank them. I could only cry when I drank them. I walked over I-5. I walked across the Fremont Bridge and the Ballard Bridge and the University Bridge. I put the contents of what had once been S's apartment into a U-Haul and drove to Boise. The day after I got home, I started writing a long story. In it, a woman tries to burn herself to death. She ends up alive, her remaining hair singed patches on her head. I finished writing it on December 28, 2011. The year ended. We're so glad to have you with us this Monday and every Monday. Please join us next week for original work by multidisciplinary artist Teal Gardner. Thank you.